I'm Dr. Mary Newport. I'm a physician. I grew up in Cincinnati and did a lot of my training in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and then uh, became a newborn intensive care specialist. And I practiced that for 30 years in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. And then um, I was also caregiver for my husband, Steve, who had early onset Alzheimer's uh, for about 15 years. And um, thereafter, um, he did go into hospice care at one point, And I started working at the opposite end of the spectrum in hospice care. So I did that for several years. Um, I've also written several books about our experience with ketones. Um, one of them is coming out a third edition very soon called Alzheimer's disease. What if there was a cure, the story of ketones. And then I have um, another book called clearly keto that came out. It's for healthy brain aging and Alzheimer's prevention that came out in November of 2022 yeah. and a couple other books. So, <laughs> so that's my background. Nice. Yeah. Those books sound really interesting and I'm excited to, to read your new book when it comes out next month. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. very excited about that. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about how you kind of got into, um, I'll backtrack a little bit. So we're going to talk about like brain health and ketones and, and fats mm -hmm. essentially today and your, your background and your, the reason you got into it is really fascinating. So do you want to like talk a little bit about that and, um, about your husband yeah. as well? Yeah. Okay. So it was really kind of an accident on the internet. Thanks. You know, thanks to the internet. Um, I came across this, but uh, my husband, Steve, he worked as an accountant at home um, for my medical practice, which was hospital based. Um, he was able to take care of our children that way, but he started having serious me uh, memory issues when he was about 51 years old. He started placing mail and forgetting if he'd been to the bank and post office, and he was very depressed. And um, basically, he continued to get worse. And when he was only 54 years old, he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease, which was just really a terrible situation, you know, for us, <laughs> our whole family. And um, he, you know, continued to worsen. And uh, like, for example, 2006, when he was 56, he could no longer drive. He was an accountant that used a computer all day. He couldn't even remember how to turn it on, use a calculator, any basics like that. And he was going downhill really fast. And 2008, a couple of new clinical trials came along in our area. And I was researching the risks and benefits of the two drugs he was going to screen for these two drugs two days in a row. And I came upon a press release about a medical food that was going to come out about a year later um, that claimed to improve the memory and cognition of nearly half the people with Alzheimer's that took it. And, and this was just in the pilot study with a single dose. And then in um, a longer term study in 152 people that lasted 45, well, it lasted 90 days and then extended to six months. And they showed improvement in memory and cognition. And that's not something you ever hear about Alzheimer's drugs. They, at best, they claim to slow the progression slightly for maybe six months or so. So um, I was very curious and I found their patent application and I found out that it was MCT oil. And I knew what that was because of my background doing newborn intensive care. We used to add MCT oil to the feedings of our tiniest preemies um, to help them, they would grow faster, they would get home sooner. And I found out that, um, you know, this medium chain triglyceride oil was extracted from coconut oil. That's something that I learned in their patent application when I found it. And um, 
that, you know, medium chain triglycerides are also present in breast milk. That's one reason we started using it, the preemies, and then they started adding it to infant formulas. So um, the thing about MCT oil is when you consume it, no matter what you eat, part of it is converted to ketones. And the reason that this could help somebody with Alzheimer's disease is because Alzheimer's um, is sometimes called diabetes of the brain. There's a problem with getting glucose into specific areas of the brain and into the brain itself that happens. It begins to happen about 10 to 20 years before a person develops symptoms. And so the idea um, with using ketones is that ketones are an alternative fuel for the brain. And this was shown from studies of starvation in the late 1960s that after a prolonged period of time, the levels of ketones start increasing dramatically. And this is because uh, you don't store very much glucose in the body. It tends to be used up within about 36 to 48 hours. And uh, when you fast, your ketone levels uh, will start to increase because you start breaking down fat since there's not glucose available. And part of that fat is converted to ketones, which cross the blood brain barrier much easier than fatty acids. And the brain, you know, can use uh, like get up to 60% of its energy from ketones. And this is what happens during prolonged fasting or starvation or people that are on a ketogenic diet, a very high fat, very low carb diet. And probably our ancestors that um, were hunter gatherers, you know, they uh, almost certainly would have been in ketosis much, if not all the time. So um, the idea was that um, ketones could potentially provide fuel to neurons in these areas of the brain that can't get glucose. It was just a really neat idea. And I thought this really seems to be sound. And then the results were also encouraging. And um, so I learned about this around 1 a.m. Uh, and he was scheduled at 9 a.m. for a screening for a clinical trial and couldn't do anything about it. So he went for the screening and he did very poorly. He needed to get 16 out of 30 points on this mini mental status exam. And he only got 14 points. So he didn't get in. The doctor asked him to um, draw a clock. And what he drew were just a few little random circles and a few numbers, very scattered. It was very disorganized. And she told me he was on the verge of severe Alzheimer's. And I thought, you know, I'm going to... Um, <laughs> follow up on what I read, you know, during the night and we picked up some coconut oil at a health food store. I didn't know you could get MCT oil, but it turned out it, it had been out for decades, you know, being used by bodybuilders to help in, increase their lean body mass and other people to lose weight. Um, but, you know, I, I knew I could get coconut oil. And then when we got home, I figured out how much of the coconut oil was medium chain triglycerides. I found their fatty acid composition, and um, figured out how much coconut oil to give him that would be equivalent to the MCT oil in the medical food. <laughs> so the next day we had our own little experiment. He was trying out again, but in the afternoon this time, like at one in the afternoon for another clinical trial at a different location, different city, different facility. And he, um, I gave him, it was almost about seven teaspoons of coconut oil is what I had calculated. So a little over two tablespoons put it in oatmeal, he ate it. And a few hours later he tested and his MMSC score came up from 14 to 18 and he qualified for the study. <laughs> and um, that was so exciting because, well, I mean, at the time I thought, did we just get lucky? 
or was there really something to do, you know, with this coconut or other pilot study, people improved even after just one dose. So um, I thought we're going to keep it going. And the medical food was only um, planned for one dose a day. And the ketone levels that they had reported increased, like peaked around 90 minutes and were gone after about three hours. And I thought, you know, the brain needs fuel 24 seven, not just for three hours a day. So um, I just, the very next day, you know, I started giving them like um, the, um, you know, little over two tablespoons every morning at breakfast, but then I started adding it at other meals, cooking with it. And we got coconut milk, which is loaded with coconut oil and, you know, things like that. So that he was getting some at every meal to try to keep the ketones going to his brain. And, and he, it had really uh, just even the first four to five days, there were really significant differences in how he was behaving basically he said it was like a light switch came on in his head the day he started coconut oil he had been very depressed his mood improved fairly quickly he was very slow um, had a very stiff gait when he walked in the morning um, he started walking faster and more talkative and a lot of people with Alzheimer's, they kind of describe it as a dead look on their face and the animation came back in his face and he started whistling and making jokes and finishing sentences. And just, you know, there were just a, a bunch of little things that added up just over the first four or five days. And he was very aware that he had Alzheimer's. Uh, some people aren't, but he was very aware of it. And we both agreed that something had changed that for the better and so, um, you know, we basically just kept it going. And then I contacted Dr. Richard Beach at the NIH, who was a world expert on ketones. I found him in Wikipedia and uh, his phone number was in Wikipedia and I called it and he answered himself, which kind of blew my mind. <laughs> and I basically asked him, theoretically, do you think coconut oil could help somebody with Alzheimer's? And I already knew that maybe it could. And he said, no, no, the levels would need to be much higher of ketones and he had told me he had been working on a ketone ester since the 1990s. He had been studying the therapeutic benefits of ketones and um, that, you know, he was working on this ketone ester that would greatly increase ketone levels within 30 minutes, much, much higher than you could get with coconut or MCT oil. So he just really didn't think that the levels would be high enough. Um, but at the two week mark, Steve drew another clock and it, this time it was a full circle. It had all the numbers and it had a whole bunch of spokes that looked like hands of the clocks. But Steve told me later that he was trying to line up the numbers across from each other on the clock when he did that. But it was just a vast improvement. And I faxed the two clocks to Dr. Beach and he called me and he said, well, this is unexpected. <laughs> and um, so it was kind of the beginning of a relationship that um, I had with Dr. Beach and he started, he had other, other, they were quite elderly researchers. They were all up in age um, when this happened. Um, the, Dr. George Cahill, who had studied ketones and starvation, Dr. Theodore Van Italy, who, um, and, and Dr. Sammy Hashem, who had discovered that ketones were produced from MCT oil in the 1960s. So their some of their major research was done in the 1960s. And, you know, we're now in the, you know, 2008. <laughs> um, so they all called me and I they started sending me articles and just all kinds of information. And it was kind of um, mind blowing, you know, at the time. And 
you know, I felt like, you know, if my husband improved, other people would too. And um, so I just felt compelled to try to get this message out to other people that were dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. And some of the other, Dr. Beach also felt it would help Parkinson's disease, people with ALS, people with multiple sclerosis, Huntington's chorea, um, and, and even congestive heart failure and recovery from heart attacks. I and mean, he felt that ketones could help with all of that. So um, that kind of became my mission, you know, from that point on. But um, and then around um, six weeks or so, Dr. Veach encouraged me. He sent me some MCT oil and then I found out I could actually get it online. <laughs> it wasn't there were maybe two brands at that point, you know, and if you search for it, you could find it. Um, and then I started adding MCT oil to coconut oil to try to get his ketone levels higher. I literally started mixing the two of them together. Uh, I didn't want to stop the coconut oil because I thought there might be something else besides just ketones with coconut oil. And that's turned out kind of to be the case. <laughs> um, but um, just a couple of the things that happened at uh, about two months, my husband was able to start tying his shoes again. If you're a caregiver, that's a really big deal, <laughs> you know? And just to think that he was at a point you know, of less than five years old, most five-year-olds can tie their shoes and he couldn't tie his shoes. And, um, and he started doing that around two months. And by then his gait had completely normalized. He was no longer stiff. He walked normally and he could pick his feet up and run again. And around um, three and a half months, he told me that he could read again. He just announced it one day. And I said, well, why couldn't he read? And he explained that um, the words, he said it was like breakup, satellite breakup is how he described it. Even that description was kind of mind blowing. But he said that the words would kind of go into pixels and move around on the page. So he couldn't read and that this had stopped. It stopped and he could read again. And then his reading comprehension improved um, a few months later. And then he started remembering what he read several hours earlier. There's some complicated you know, details of stories that he would tell me that he had read. Uh, around nine or 10 months um, after he started the coconut oil. So a very, very dramatic improvement. And, you know, he improved enough that he was able to work as a volunteer at the hospital that I worked at. He worked in the supply warehouse that made him so happy. He, he just felt very useless. And I, it was part of his depression too, I think, knowing what he had been able to do and what he couldn't do and to be able to recover some of that again and be able to cut the grass again and things like that was a, really a big deal for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really a long story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Mary. Is there more you wanted to say to that, or is that at the end? Well, um, yeah, I mean, things you know continued. Um, he actually got into the clinical trial and he tried out for the other one again, and he got a, a score of 20 uh, about two months after the first uh, round of testing. Um, and, you know, so he had improved even more by then and he got accepted really into both studies and we had a choice and, uh, neither of them turned out to be a good choice. Unfortunately, <laughs> neither of the drugs panned out and even worse than that, they had serious side effects. So, um, so my husband, uh, we chose a drug called semigasostat. And so these drugs and, and many since then, um, were aimed at removing beta amyloid plaque from the brain. So this is plaque. It's one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease that you uh, accumulate these plaques in your brain 
Um, it turns out that elderly people accumulate plaques in their brains and many of them are not, do not have cognitive problems. But, you know, the, uh, they've been obsessed really with developing drugs to try to remove these plaques. And both of these drugs did this. Um, so we found out, um, so about two months after the coconut oil, he started this drug trial. And so then from that point on, I wasn't 100% sure if his continued improvement was from the drug or not, you know, that he was getting. Um, but it turned out, uh, we found out later that he was on the placebo for 18 months. So, and, you know, everything that happened during that first year, all of that improvement, we could only attribute to his change in diet, you know, this addition of coconut and MCT oil to his diet. Um, and, you know, he kind of leveled off during the second year, I would say. And then unfortunately, he did cross over to the drug. You know, we found this out later. After 18 months, he was on it for about six weeks. And we could tell that he was on it because one of the known side effects was that the hair started growing out a different color. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what happened. Um, his hair started growing out kind of a light gold color. And uh, he had like this ribbon of, you know, new color coming out, but then he had other serious, um, he had things like he had an abrasion that wouldn't heal for a whole month on his shin. He would nick himself shaving. It would bleed for three or four days. And then he fainted and, you know, a few other things like that. And, and I decided um, to pull him out of the study. And he also, he had a bad cold. He, um, he had a constant problem with fever blisters up until we started the coconut oil. And, uh, you know, he kind of broke out and fever blisters again, you know, a few things. And, um, you know, uh, we decided to stop the study and he had a couple of other setbacks, like new symptoms with his Alzheimer's. Uh, he started wandering. He went to look for his brothers who lived 700 miles away. He'd like walk up the road looking for them and just a few really worrisome things. And so Dr. Veach, he, you know, had, just finished toxicity testing for this ketone ester that he had been working on for, you know, um, really, gosh, um, about 15 years at that point. And he asked if we would like to be the first people to get to try this ketone ester, you know, the first, and Steve was the first person with Alzheimer's as a pilot study of one person. And he sent us the raw material. It tasted wretched. It tasted like jet fuel. I mean, it, I can't even describe how bad it tasted. And it was up to me to figure out how to make it drinkable. <laughs> but, you know, like I've said, Steve was aware he had Alzheimer's. He knew all about this. We talked about it all the time. The ketones, the ketone ester, all of this. And he just very willingly took it. And he was... Um, I did a video recording of him for about two hours, you know, a little bit before and then for a couple hours after he drank it. And and he <laughs> went there were there were just several interesting things. He was euphoric for one thing. And that's one of the side effects, the good side effects of uh, ketone ester. Sometimes you just feel really good. He was very happy. Um, and he decided that he was going to write out the alphabet, you know, which he hadn't even attempted to do for a very long time. And um, he kept trying over and over and over for about 20 minutes. And then he finally said the alphabet. He started kind of singing it and then he said it. And then finally he got it completely written out and he was just so happy. And I mean, just that he could stick to the task for 20 minutes, somebody with Alzheimer's, that in and of itself was amazing. But then he did write out the whole alphabet and he cursed his first grade teacher 
for his penmanship, his poor penmanship. There were other kind of funny things. He remembered her by name and cursed her about the penmanship. Just, you know, it was kind of funny, you know, just um, watching it, his, you know, because he was just so happy and, you know, a lot of the things that he said, and but he was just very with it. He was there and he knew what was happening. And, you know, so it was really quite astounding. And then all of the, <clears throat> well, one of the things that had changed at that point, you know, for the worse was that he needed to be supervised and talk through almost everything that he did to take care of himself. You know, so um, for example, if he was taking a shower, I would have to kind of stand there with him and tell him, okay, get your hair wet. Okay. Uh, now put some shampoo in your hand. Now rub it in your hair. Okay. Now rinse it out and talk him through the whole shower. And I had to do that when he was shaving too, or brushing his teeth. And the very next day, he just did it all himself without any help at all. He just picked out his clothes. I mean, he took a shower, shaved, picked out his clothes, comes out fully, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then um, the other things like the wandering and and that within about six weeks, we weren't really seeing any more of that again. And, you know, so it was really quite um, impressive, you know, how much things changed really just in a short period of time again with the ketone ester. And, and so that was in 2010 that that happened. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, like yeah. all of that is like, it, is, it just kind of blows my mind. Cause like my, my grandmother passed away like years ago and she had definitely a lot of cognitive decline. Like physically she was really strong and was mm -hmm. able to do things just fine. She would garden all day, every day. And she was like 80 years old, but she mm -hmm. couldn't remember anything like short term. And I would go see her and she would ask me like the same questions about my life from like 10, 15 years prior, just mm -hmm. consistently, just over and over and over. And it's, it's really interesting that like something so cheap and available mm -hmm. can be so helpful for something that's kind of like, quote unquote, uncurable, right? Right, right. And, you know, so basically what ultimately my husband did pass away from Alzheimer's and um, he, he continued the ketone ester well, really for the rest of his life, but um, it kept him very stable, improved him and then kept, kept him stable again for another 20 months. And I was still giving him the coconut and MCT oil, though not quite as much, but he basically, um, he had kind of two, <laughs> two bouts, um, like a medication reaction that put him in the hospital that took him down a notch, you know, pretty good notch, but he kind of recovered fairly well from that. But then um, in 2013, he was standing and he had just, I had just left a few minutes earlier. There was a lady that was staying with him while I was working and he had hugged me, told me he loved me. And then she called me about five minutes after I got to the hospital. And she said that Steve, she had called 911 because Steve had uh, fallen straight back and hit his head and he was having a full-blown seizure and he had stopped bleed, uh, breathing and he was blue and she was shaking him to keep him breathing. And um, I got home before EMS got there and he was blue and, you know, he was breathing at that point, but the first seizure lasted about 20 minutes. And then they said on the way to the hospital that he had another seizure and he was completely out of it for a couple of days. I really thought I was going to lose him at that point. Um, he didn't have a stroke or a hemorrhage in his brain. They did CT scans and that kind of thing. But um Alzheimer's, we know um, there's about a 20% uh, incidence of seizures during the later stages of Alzheimer's. And, <clears throat> and that really, 
changed everything. I think, you know, having a head injury like that when your brain is already so fragile and a prolonged lack of oxygen, you know, all of that was just too much. And he became completely dependent after that. And, uh, but he still managed to hang in there for another two and a half years. And then, uh, then he did pass away at home. We had him in hospice care and he passed away um, at home uh, from directly from Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, like that, the whole story is really fascinating. And it's like, mm-hmm. sorry to hear that he passed that way, but at least he was at home with you guys. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it, it's really interesting how you're able to improve his quality of life the past or however many years um, yeah. before he passed, because that, mm-hmm. that's, that's incredible to hear. And it's like such a, a cheap intervention versus like medications mm-hmm. with all these other side effects. Like you're saying the funny ones, kind of like the hair growing in differently or different right. colors, but there's a lot mm-hmm. more severe like interactions as well. And like something that you can just get like literally at the grocery store in almost any town um, right. could potentially help somebody with um, like dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah. Well, that, that drug that he was on, they called us a few months after we stopped the study and they told us that they had completely stopped the study because they found that it accelerated Alzheimer's. Interesting. And he was on it for six weeks and it's like, then I was cursing. I mean, <laughs> the coconut will help them get into the study, you know, <laughs> but then it was a drug that ultimately, you know, um, turned out to be rather devastating. I would say, um, luckily he was only on that for six weeks. If he'd been on that for 18 months, I, you know, I, I doubt that, um, I'd even be sitting here, t- <laughs> you know, talking to you about this now. Um, so we were very fortunate that he was on the placebo, you know, in the beginning there. But you're right. I mean, coconut and MCT oil are very, very cheap. You know, that these new drugs that have just been approved, uh, two of them in the last uh, about a year and a half for Alzheimer's, they both, the idea is to remove plaque from the brain. And the studies, not even in all of their studies, it was like in one of their studies, there was a little bit of of improvement and how fast somebody declined, but, you know, neither of them claims to improve memory or cognition at all. And, um, they're extremely expensive. They're both of them are, um, they've estimated at at least 37,000 just for the drug. That doesn't count having to go to a site to have it injected every couple of weeks. You have to get it intravenously, you know, so that the doctors, nurses, you know, the people involved in that process and all the supplies, are additional, you know, compared to the cost of the drug. And, um, you know, so, and then for just a little bit of decline in the side effects, um, this new one, Lakembi, and the other one too, they both have a problem with um, swelling in the brain or bleeding in the brain. And this happens in one out of five people that take it. So you risk a serious side effect, you know, one out of five chance that you may have this serious side effect for a slight slowing of decline, you know, at great, great expense, uh, you know, most families, they wouldn't even, you know, be able to afford the co-pays, much less to pay for the whole thing. Um, so, you know, but coconut and MCT oil <clears throat> actually seems to improve memory and cognition and other things. Um, I just recently uh, came back from the Alzheimer's Association conference which was in Amsterdam. Uh, This was in July, 2023. And I was uh, accepted to have two poster presentations there. And I got to do like a a two, three minute, like presentation, slide presentations that are available online, you know, for people that attended the conference. 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to put them on um, YouTube soon um, as well. But <clears throat> one of them, I had collected, started collecting emails. You know, I became obsessed with getting this message out. I wrote to um, Sandra Day O'Connor. She was on this Alzheimer study group. Her husband had Alzheimer's at the time. This was in 2008. I wrote over and over to the Alzheimer's Association. I wrote to politicians, to the media. <clears throat> and basically, you know, I explained what happened with my husband, you know, the the medical food that was still uh, a while away from being available, uh, but it was available on the shelf. People didn't need to wait. And that I wanted them to get their medical people on this, their scientists, to quickly study it and get this message out to the public that just simply taking coconut and or MCT oil could potentially help people with Alzheimer's. And I basically got no response whatsoever. I mean, it was like pulling teeth to get anybody to pay attention to this. And so I, I wrote an article um, at really about two months after my husband started with the coconut oil um, to explain, you know, exactly what I had written in these other letters and just put it out. They put it out. I put it in health food stores. I put it on the internet and it, it did get out. It, um, uh, I was on a radio program locally and then our regional newspaper picked up on it and they called me and they, they did a story on it and they, they spoke with Dr. Veach. They spoke with, uh, um, a couple of others that had had some improvement with it and, um, talked to Dr. Van Italy, the nutrition researcher and, um, you know, basically it went viral. Um, there was a, a photo of Steve and I, and it had his three clocks. So his third clock was even better than the second clock. And it had pictures of his clock and it went viral. And so then I started hearing from other people about their response to um, coconut and MCT oil. And <clears throat> so I just started, you know, I wasn't like emailing people saying, um, try this and this is what to expect. And, you know, and then let me know. No, these were people that just found from the article that I, I had my phone number and I had my email address on this article that got out and um, they just started emailing me mostly. And sometimes it was the person themselves, but usually it was a caregiver, the family member, often a spouse, a child, um, sometimes paid caregivers. Um, and they would tell me, um, oh, we read your article. And we started doing, you know, giving coconut oil and, and they would tell me the improvements that they were seeing. And it was, um, it, you know, it was very dramatic. Um, and some people had just a, an incredible amount of detail and not what, what she was like before, what improvements they had seen. There were some people that were kind of vague. They'd say, well, he improved a lot. And I just say, I wouldn't tell them what to look for, but I would say, can you just you know, give me a little more detail about what you noticed? And then sometimes they would write me back, but I collected between 2008 and 2014, I collected 360 little email reports, almost all email reports, some by phone. And um, of those 288 had some kind of memory problem, about half of them were Alzheimer's, Another 25% were other types of dementia. And then people with Parkinson's that had memory issues, you know, that type of thing. And um, I <clears throat> used phrases from the um, emails that they had sent 
to try to categorize what kind of improvements they were reporting. And, and then I made a chart out of it just to kind of show, you know, and three quarters of the people, they were just taking coconut oil. And then another 25% had added MCT oil um, later. Um, and, and it was really pretty dramatic. And um, this, uh, as I was collecting them along the way, I, well, I had put them all on an Excel spreadsheet and, and, but I had, accumulated was used to get some grants to try to study this um, early on. And, but then um, I got to present a poster showing these results at the Alzheimer's Association conference. And, um, you know, I was uh, really pretty excited about that. I got to talk to probably close to 50 different researchers, physicians, dietitians. A lot of them had never, ever heard a single thing about this. Some had heard a little bit about it, that the keto diet might have something to do with Alzheimer's and improving it. And um, so it was really quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's interesting how it's almost like it's taken so many years for people to recognize that that food can impact your brain so heavily, especially considering how like fasting protocols and the like, ketogenic diets were used for, for epilepsy and seizures, like, well, like a hundred years ago or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. 1921. Um, there was a, a pediatrician and then another uh, physician that, um, well, first they reported uh, about the ketogenic diet, that uh, very high fat diet could mimic fasting and fasting had been used to try to control seizures. I mean, from biblical times, you know, from even before, you know, um, like uh, Hippocrates had mentioned using fasting to try to control seizures. And in the Bible, there are mentions of it. Um, and, you know, so up until 1921, you know, that type of fasting was used sometimes to try to control seizures and successful in many cases, but you can only fast for so long. Um, so in 1921, when um, these uh, physicians discovered that a very high fat diet, they were like 90% fat, mimicked um, fasting um, and <clears throat> like the very next day they put out a report of I believe it was eight cases they were children and adults who had epilepsy that were hospitalized that responded to this very high fat diet um, by controlling their seizures and um, so then it it really became the big thing to try to control seizures because the um, anticonvulsants weren't really out yet at that point you know, there were no medications available that really uh, could control seizures. And so there was a whole lot of research um, in the 1920s and 30s and into the 40s. And then um, a couple of drugs like all came along that did control a lot of seizures. And the ketogenic diet kind of went by the wayside, um, although it was still, you know, the, like Johns Hopkins Hospital had maintained a program all that time. Um, when I was doing my training in Cincinnati in the 1970s, I remember having a patient, a young patient that had epilepsy that was on a ketogenic diet for that reason. You know, so it was around a little bit, but not very much. And then in the 1990s, Jim Abrams, um, he was the director of uh, some really funny movies, um, Airplane and uh, the Naked Gun series and that kind of thing. <clears throat> he had a son, Charlie, who was only 20 months old and he was having up to hundred seizures a day. And he had taken Charlie to at least five different neurologists around the country. 
not one of them had ever mentioned the ketogenic diet. And he even had surgery. He had brain surgery to try to control his seizures. He was on multiple drugs. He was lethargic all the time. They had to keep a helmet on him, you know, that because he would just drop, you know, at uh, any moment and could hit his head. And, and um, Jim did some library research and he came across the ketogenic diet and he found out that they were doing this at Johns Hopkins. And he phoned him up and they brought Charlie there and admitted him and put him on the diet within 48 hours. He completely stopped having seizures. And he, um, you know, ended up being on the ketogenic diet for about seven years. And uh, you, when children are on this, they will try every couple of years, they'll try them off of it to see if their seizures return, if it controls their seizures. And so um, Charlie ended up being on the diet for about seven years because when they would try to take him off before that, he would have a seizure. But now he's been off of it. He's in his, I believe, his mid to late 20s now. He works as a, um, he works with, um, I believe it's um, uh, learning impaired children. Um, and he is very active. He himself isn't using the ketogenic diet anymore, but the rest of his family is, <laughs> which his father told me. Um, and he's never had another seizure since. And they don't know why he had epilepsy. He just did. And they don't care because it went away. <laughs> you know, the diet controlled it. But um, they developed a foundation called the Charlie Foundation. So if anybody is dealing with um, seizures, but, you know, they also now help other people. They'll help people with Alzheimer's. They'll help people with cancer that want to use a ketogenic diet, you know, to help uh, control maybe the growth of the cancer or slow it down, you know, um, which is done in conjunction with other treatments. Um, so for many different reasons, they will help people with a ketogenic diet and they've helped open over 300 centers around the world for ketogenic diet, trained numerous more dietitians, And, you know, so it's just really, um, been astounding, you know, what they've done, you know, with trying to get the message out there and, and actually making things happen, you know, with, um, helping people with a ketogenic diet. Yeah. That's really fascinating that like essentially just like cure or basically put into remission, um, like the seizures or disease like that. And it's reminded me of a, a friend of mine from college, um, his mom, like she was a little overweight, but then started having like, like seizures and things. And, um, like surprisingly, like, and they live in like small town in Wyoming. Um, but their doctor or her doctor put her on a ketogenic diet and it basically eliminated all of her issues. So as far as I know, that's what she's still doing is eating that way. And it's just, it's so interesting because especially considering how, like however many years ago, there's this giant push for low fat diets, like no eggs, no fat, yes. like all fat is bad. And then it's like, yeah. are we seeing the repercussions of that now or yes, people were we not are. fueling their brains? <laughs> yeah, I, I totally believe that we are seeing the, the repercussions of that. And, um, and there's still an element out there that's really still very strongly pushing this, the low fat diet, uh, the dietary guidelines for Americans, they kind of, um, <laughs> They, they um, you know, recommend limiting saturated fat to less than 10% of calories. Most people can't figure out how, how to calculate that. You know, all natural fats and oils have saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated fats, you know. So how is the average person supposed to calculate how much saturated fat they have in their diet? So that's, that's just one of the issues, you know. But um, for a long time, they, they kind of put limits on fat between 20 and 35%. Um, Americans really didn't get much more than 38 to 40%. I mean, they were, you know, just barely above the limits that they're saying, you know, we should stay at now, but, but they strongly encourage 
low fat and fat free milk and dairy products, for example, you know, you know, throughout millions of years of human history, you know, it's only been, you know, a century since we've even had availability of fat free and low fat dairy. Humans didn't need that, you know, up to this point to eliminate those particular fats from their diet. And, and, um, but even for tiny children, as a pediatrician, this really upsets me, you know, that when they are two years old, they advise their parents to give them fat free or uh, low fat dairy, yogurt, you know, milk, all of that. And, you know, these are children, you know, I, I was, I've been doing a little bit of research about this, you know, for another book that I want to write um, to help, you know, feed children better. Um, and the average duration of breastfeeding in the 1960s in most countries around the world was like almost three years. <laughs> and now, you know, six months is encouraged, you know, a year if possible and six months is strongly encouraged. Um, but, you know, at two years, they switch over to a very low fat diet. They have this, my plate, you know, um, it has no fat on the plate. It's, designed uh they they have a version for children that looks just like the adult version um they show protein they show vegetables um on the plate they show um grains like a quarter of the plate they have low fat dairy milk in a cup like a cup of milk but there is no fat at all they say low fat or fat free dairy they, they don't show any fat at all on this plate and then um you know at two years a child's supposed to transition to this very low fat diet. Well, breast milk has 50% fat and infant formulas are between 40 and 50% fat. And half of that fat is saturated fat, you know, so about a quarter of their calories, um, uh, you know, are coming from uh, saturated fat, uh, you know, in the child. And then suddenly abruptly they're changed to an extremely low fat diet. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you know, their brain's growing very rapidly at that point. The brain's about 60, 70% lipids, fats. And, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense to, to do that at that point. Or really at any point, I don't think it's really appropriate for any of us, but especially not for very young children. And, and you know, the thing, you know, these dietary guidelines inform how schools feed children, Um and the women, infants and children's program that helps, you know, people who are underprivileged, you know, with um, getting food and SNAP programs, you know, food, food stamp programs, you know, they limit even small children to they, they can only get fat free and low fat milk and dairy, you know, um, with the, you know, the funds that they're provided with. So, you know, it's just a very, very big problem. And you know, rates of autism have been steadily increasing and <laughs> you wonder, you know, there has to be something going on. Uh, and, it, and, you know, the, the rates of obesity and overweight in children, it's about 41%. It, it used to be rare that you would see a small child that was um, overweight or obese. And now it's very common. Um, you're seeing what used to be called adult onset diabetes, type two diabetes, even in very young children, the rates of diabetes have been steadily increasing for children for years now, you know, so, you know, this low fat diet has been very bad and, um, you know, processed foods have a, a, also a lot to do with this. Um, we had a lot of trans fat in our diet until about 2018, 
They finally, in the U.S., it's been phased out, uh, not completely banned, but almost banned. You know, they have to have less than a half a gram of trans fat per serving. And, you know, um, for a long time, like fast food fries, you know, could you could have 35 grams of trans fat in, in a serving of um, of fries, deep fried, uh, you know, potatoes. <laughs> so um, just a lot of other things have happened to our diet as well, you know, but pushing a low fat diet it becomes a high carb diet then, you know, you, you eat a certain number of calories a day and most people eat a pretty fixed amount of protein. Um, it's should be maybe 15, 20% of, you know, the diet is kind of what's recommended. It could be more than that, but, um, that's probably what the average person eats if that. So if you reduce fat in order to maintain your weight, you need to eat more carbohydrate and, when you eat a lot of carbohydrate, you crave more carbohydrate. <laughs> and, and so people are eating about 300 calories more per day on average adults are than they used to maybe 30 years ago. And um, it's almost all as carbohydrate as sugar, you know, so the, the adult population and you know, children have steadily been getting heavier and heavier and much, much more diabetes, you know, than, than what we had, you know, um, around 1970 before all of this got really pushed. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly frustrating to look at the, like the USDA food guidelines. Like they came out with um, some stuff recently, some like updated guidelines, whatever you want to call it. And you can tell how it's just, it's, it's not like an appropriate diet where they're recommending like, for example, seed oils and processed sugars. And then like you're saying, low fat dairy. And um, it's reminding me of the other day, my girlfriend and I were at a grocery store getting some things and mm-hmm. I don't know why we walked down. Oh, we're looking for baby wipes. We don't have a kid in, or anything, but uh, I was a lot of people use baby wipes. <laughs> yeah, I use them for a lot of different things. <laughs> Usually just for cleaning up after runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, as we were walking down that aisle, and I was looking around at things, and they had baby formula, and one said plant based on it, and I was like, oh, like I wonder what's in this. And the first ingredient was corn syrup solids, and mm-hmm. or corn solids or something like that. I was like, yeah. I don't even really know what that is, but it's clearly not like real food. And then the yeah. second ingredient was some sort of seed oil. I think it was soybean oil or something. Oh, and soybean the, oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think after that, it was like a mixture of other vegetable oils or seed oils, we should say. And then mm-hmm. it's a bunch of like, like processed vi- or uh, lab made vitamins thrown in there. I'm like, okay, like maybe like, like on paper, this meets like macro needs in some sense, because there's some fat in there from the seed oils and stuff, but like the actual nutrient density is not there. Plus like the high omega-6 content and other things. And it's just kind of sad that like that all these narratives have been pushed so long and it's like, okay, low fat's good. And it's like, it's not good for children, clearly from the data, but here we are pushing like this like healthy, I'm, I'm air quoting right now, people are listening, like plant-based yeah. diet on children and like infants and it's just bad for their development. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I took a walk down the aisle. Um, it was the infant aisle. <laughs> probably about six or eight months ago, um, the dietary guidelines for Americans, they're working on 2025 now and they accept public comments. So I did submit public comments about infants and children, you know, this whole issue, you know, that I'm worried about, but, you know, I think of infant formula as like the ultimate ultra processed food. Uh, A lot of the vitamins are synthetic. They're not the natural forms of the vitamins. Um, There's a very important substance called choline, it's part of every cell membrane. Uh, choline is part of the um, neurotransmitter of the brain chemical 
called acetylcholine that has to do with learning and memory. You know, it's very, very important, you know, that we get enough of it. And um, in the U.S., um, uh, the average person gets about half of what the recommended requirement is. And children in the infant formula, they use a synthetic form of it that doesn't increase levels nearly as much as the natural form of it that they would get in breast milk. You know, um, the form that's in breast milk um, tends to increase the level all day long. And plus they're feeding, you know, round the clock. Um, and infant formula, it increases the level for about 30 minutes, you know, the synthetic form and, you know, other vitamins too, that the metabol, you know, your metabolism might not know exactly how to use it most efficiently in that form. And, you know, having, uh, like you said, the highly refined oils, contaminants get into these oils as they're refined because they they often will do like bleaching, deodorizing. They use different solvents to do this and it can introduce contaminants into these oils. You know, so, you know, those are a big worry. And the other thing I it, that just kind of blew my mind, I hadn't noticed it before, but they had snacks for baby. <laughs> it was like a, some products that were called snacks for baby and and they were little like wafers that were supposedly made out of freeze-dried yogurt that were pure sugar. It was just all carbohydrate. And, you know, and they show a little, you know, young infant face on the package. And they had a quarter of a cup of these was the serving size. And I thought, you know, what baby needs a sugary snack like that? This just sets them up to crave and want sugar and to expect, you know, sweet treats like this, you know, as they get older, you know, no six month old or 12 month old baby needs these. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the foods, um, I, they can get away with, you know, they um, added sugar, there's limits to how much added sugar, you know, that they're allowed to put in these things. But I noticed that they add starches you know, like cornstarch or tapioca starch to a lot of the infant foods. And those are carbohydrate that do turn into sugar, but it's not considered added sugar. So they can put this in as filler, it makes it thicker, whatever it does to it. But it increases the carbohydrate, the sugar content of the, and, and it's, you know, the glycemic index of like cornstarch and tapioca starch are high, you know, uh, similar to simple sugar, you know, like uh, sucrose or something. You know, so it's like, what are they doing <laughs> to our young children? And, you know, and parents trust what's on the shelves. You know, I, it, you know, if it's on the shelf, it must be good. Um, I, I just think an awful lot of people, you know, they, there's not enough of a nutrition background for most people to be able to recognize a difference, you know, in quality, you know, among, you know, the foods that are on the shelves there. And, you know, the grocery shelves, people are going to eat what's on the shelf. That's what's available to buy. That's what they're going to eat, you know, in, in most cases, unless they've really gotten educated, taken the time to get educated or had the opportunity to become educated about nutrition. And, and even so, you know, the, the organizations, certain organizations push all of the sugar, low fat diet and the sugar and, um, it's just been very detri detrimental, you know, um, to so, so many people. Yeah. And you really can't blame people for just trusting what's on the no. shelf, right? Cause they assume that like, okay, no. if it's on the shelf, it's, it's healthy and like, or at least like, I don't know, not going to kill you or cause right. any issues. Cause people are just working so much. And like the last thing they want to do is read research papers all day about, right. about nutrition or something. Right. Right. And 
you know, um, you know, what goes into infant foods and formulas is highly regulated. I mean, there are very, very strict guidelines for it. And yet, you know, somehow they managed to get around it in many ways, you know, to create these sugary foods and, you know, like they, um, well, like the dietary guidelines for Americans, they um, encourage that half of the grains be whole grains, which means half can be refined grains. Well, refined grains have only been around for about 150 years or so. And, and most people weren't even eating them yet until, you know, well into the 20th century when, you know, um, white flour started showing up in almost everything. And I mean, these days, I would say most people have white flour at almost every meal and snack in some form or other, you know, um, whole grains are, are becoming consumed more, you know, but when they design these infant foods on the package, it will say, it'll say whole grains on the front of the package. And then you looked at it, you'll look at it. And the first ingredient is enriched, refined white flour. <laughs> and there's a little bit of whole grain somewhere in this food, but yet they're allowed to proclaim this on the front of the package, you know, um, and, you know, unless the parent is a, a very, good label reader, you know, um, they're, they're gonna, you know, say, oh, it has whole grains, that's healthy, you know, and buy it. Yeah. And I guess like thinking of that as well, like, um, that's, that's not tradition, but I guess that the habit kind of just continues on from childhood. If they're like, you're saying baby formula is essentially a highly refined food. Then it's like, mm -hmm. okay, white bread is also a highly refined food. And most people don't think of it as that because it's like, well, it's, it's bread, it's healthy. But right. like white bread's gonna raise your your blood sugar like crazy, and it's just it's hyper palatable. You can eat a ton of like white bread. <laughs> There's not right. a lot to it, and it just jacks up your blood sugar really, really quickly. Yes, right. And then uh, you know the vitamins have been removed from it too. The natural forms of the vitamins, and then they add a couple back: uh, folic acid and um, um, you know some uh, well uh, thiamine and niacin. You know, or two that they will add to white flour and to try to make up for um, what they took out, but they're synthetic forms of the vitamins. They're not the natural forms. You know, so again, they might not be used quite the way we would hope, you know, in our metabolism. So, um, uh, you know, and um, getting back to the ketogenic diet, um, another group that could hugely, hugely benefit from this are people with diabetes, you know, di uh, type two diabetes has, um, you know, basically soared the, the rates of it in the U.S. and really around the world. I mean, there's some uh, Asian Pacific islands where it's over 25% of the population of the adult population has type 2 diabetes and and um, obesity is also very prevalent, you know, in the same areas. Um, but, you know, there are uh, physicians around the U.S. and other countries, you know, who have really latched on to using a very low carb higher fat diet, you know, basically a ketogenic diet to help people go into remission from type two diabetes. And one example of that is Dr. Eric Westman, uh, who's at Duke university. Um, he actually got to know Dr. Atkins back during the Atkins revolution, you know, when the Atkins diet first came out, uh, which was a very low carb, higher fat diet. And, and, um, he started, um, uh, treating people with type two diabetes using this diet about 25 years ago, Eric Westman did, and he's helped over 4,000 people with diabetes go into remission. They get completely off all their medication or insulin. They cut their insulin. He cuts their insulin in half, like the day they start the diet. 
because as soon as you reduce the carbohydrate, you don't need as much insulin, you know, if you're somebody who who's on insulin. Um, and, you know, he said that about half the people that he treats are able to maintain this diet for at least a year, but it, it over, you know, time and so, sometimes fairly quickly within six or eight weeks, it can greatly reduce the fasting blood sugar, uh, hemoglobin A1C, which gives a rough idea of your glucose level over about three months, fasting insulin levels go way down. And um, he said, like the most resistant people, it could take a year, year and a half, you know, um, for, for people with really severe insulin resistance to improve, but they can, they can get better. They can go into remission and get off these medications, lose some weight and feel a whole lot better. And, you know, potentially avoid these serious complications that happen with um, diabetes, you know, when somebody gets older and, and, um, you know, recently there's even been um, some study of the, um, for type one diabetes. So these are people that have no insulin at all. They have to inject insulin to survive. And, and that was another reason for using fasting back uh, before insulin came along also in the year 1921. <clears throat> They would sometimes uh, use fasting to try to prolong the life, but at best they could get maybe a year of extra life by doing this uh, off and on fasting. Um, but when insulin came along, um, it you know completely changed everything you know for type one diabetes. But many people you know with type one have their their blood sugars fluctuate all over the place. They're prone to uh, often having uh, attacks of low blood sugar hypoglycemia. Their blood sugar can range from 70 to 300 in a day, you know, um, quite a bit of fluctuation. And it's very hard, you know, because you usually you inject insulin, you know, maybe two or three times a day. And based on what you eat, you calculate how much to take, you know, that type of thing. Some people are on a continuous um, insulin pump. You know, there's a people that some of them that have the, the greatest difficulty controlling their blood sugar might be on an insulin pump, but most people aren't. And um, there's a, a perfect example, Dr. Eric, uh, not Eric, Dr. Andrew Kutnick. Um, he's a PhD that trained at University of South Florida near me, and I got to know him. And and he um, is a, has type one diabetes for many years. He's very tall and, and lean, and um, he put himself on a ketogenic diet. And he was able; he's been able to cut his insulin by seventy five percent. How much insulin he's taking. And his blood sugars, which would just be all over the place in a day, now, you know, fluctuate between about 70 and 120, you know, which is phenomenal for somebody with type 1 diabetes. And so um, he's been working, they've been doing some studies and um, he's published a couple of papers about this now, you know, so even, you know, people with type 1, they might be able to avoid some of these really serious complications that happen later by using a low carb, higher fat diet to control, you know, their blood sugar. Yeah. So I guess speaking of that thing, cause it's, it's interesting, like how much we can do just some like that are things that are pretty simple like that, just changing your diet a little bit, but yeah. like, what can people do now? Cause you were saying earlier that like, you don't really see the effects of like say dementia or Alzheimer's, like, I guess you, it's like 10 to 20 years prior before you actually see the kind of the negative effects of it. Right. Or the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the most important things for, for people to think about how much sugar they're eating and see where they can cut that. I think that's probably the number one thing. <clears throat> um, you know, trying to get more to whole foods, getting away from processed and ultra processed foods, 
which tend to be loaded with the refined oils, with the um, uh, fructose is very inflammatory um, to the brain and, and every other cell in your body. Um, so, you know, people can get rid of obvious sweets, you know, maybe save them for an occasional treat or something. I mean, it's really hard, I think, for humans to not ever have anything sweet, <laughs> you know, but <clears throat> sugar addiction is real, you know, and the more you eat of it, the more you tend to want it. And, um, you know, so limiting that to very few occasions a year is a good idea. Getting rid of sugary drinks. Uh, there's some research out there showing that just having one sugary uh, drink a day, and that could be 100% fruit juice even, um, it, it um, increases the rate of shrinkage of the brain by a couple of years, and it increases um, memory-related uh, problems. Uh, it, your, it advances your age <laughs> in regard uh, to your memory uh, by having just one drink like that a day. And if you make that two or three drinks a day, it's much worse. You know, it could advance uh, brain aging by about 13 years if you're taking three or more sugary drinks a day. And you think of how many people are drinking several cans of like Coca-Cola or something or a liter, a two liter bottle a day, you know, something like that. It, it ages your brain and, and your body. Um, you know, so getting rid of sugary drinks is very high on the list. And then, um, you know, I suggest that people, an easy, relatively easy way to cut the carbohydrate in the diet is to um, cut the portions in half of starchy foods, you know, like bread, rice, pasta, cereal, um, you know, those types of uh, potatoes, you know, starchy foods, cut your portion in half. And when you get used to that, cut it in half again, you know, in the US, we've kind of supersized a lot of our portions and you go to other countries and they might have a tiny little, like uh, um, in Japan, you know, you might have a tiny little serving of, of um, you know, something, uh, that's a starchy vegetable, you know, and here, you know, have this gigantic potato, you know, sitting on your plate that's loaded with all kinds of other stuff, you know, so, you know, basically cutting way down on those portions and then increasing the healthy fats in the diet. And, you know, like olive oil is a healthy fat butter, well, extra virgin olive oil, you kind of want to stay away even from refined olive oil. Um, extra virgin olive oil has polyphenols, has antioxidants, um, anti-inflammatory substances, Virgin coconut oil does too, has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant substances. Um, so, you know, butter is fine. Uh, margarine is refined oils, you know, um, for years and years, margarine was hydrogenated fat. It was hydrogenated fat loaded with trans fats. So that that's what I grew up on, you know, um, <laughs> and shortening, you know, Crisco was for years and years, it was, it was just you know, heavily hydrogenated fat that contained trans fats and many U.S. households, a lot of us, you know, grew up on, on that, all that fat, you know, with, that we just got rid of recently. Um, and, you know, it's been shown to be harmful to the heart. Um, these trans fats get into cell membranes, they interfere with what's transported in and out of the cell. So it's really good that those have gone by the wayside. A lot of other countries still allow them, um, but, um, you know, I, and, and that's kind of, you know, we're getting away from ultra processed foods comes in, you know, it, it, if you go to whole foods, like a Mediterranean kind of diet, you know, for example, um, even a plant-based diet in many ways. Um, but, you know, I like to include some 
you know, I like to eat a lot of fish, actually. I never used to touch it. <laughs> and now, you know, three or four servings a week, you know, meals a week, I have, you know, a fish and um, eggs are good. You know, we were told eggs were bad. Eggs are really good. And, um, you know, eating whole grains, staying away from refined grains, you know, that type of thing um, really can make a big, big difference in how much inflammation you have in your body in general, and especially in your brain. Um, it can help control your blood sugar, you know, like three quarters of people by the time they're 75 have diabetes or pre-diabetes. If you can possibly avoid that, that will greatly reduce your risk of getting dementia later. It's about 30% in people that have, um, diabetes that they will develop dementia and it's 5% in the general population, people that don't have diabetes, big difference if you have diabetes. So anything you can do to control your blood sugar, you know, is going to be very beneficial. Yeah. Um, I guess thinking of that, like the, the blood sugar study, um, or the, the study about sugary drinks and what you're talking about is really interesting mm -hmm. because like I, myself, I, I run a lot and ride my bike a lot and mm -hmm. the narrative in that world is always is more carbs is better. Mm -hmm. And so people kind of extrapolate that to, okay, well, all day, every day I'm just going to consume carbohydrates. So, so for mm -hmm. breakfast, I'm going to have some sort of sugary drink because there's carbs in it and then oatmeal and then toast and jam all these mm -hmm. things and then it's like okay i just finished my ride i'll have my 20 grams of protein in a shake or something and then also have a bunch more carbohydrates again and it's like a non-stop thing and you always just see people just like drinking coca-cola or adding sugar to their coffee and these sort of things mm -hmm. and but people justify it as like oh well i, I ran five miles today or 10 miles today so i can eat whatever i want it's like mm -hmm. Yeah, yes and no. Like there's definitely yeah, repercussions there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, yeah, my husband and I, we were on the um, I call it the convenience food diet until about 2006. And, you know, I, you know, I I totally bought into the low-fat diet idea. I mean, it was pushed heavily. And, you know, they had a um a pyramid, food pyramid that had at the base of the pyramid, six to 11 servings a day of grains, <laughs> 11 servings that that could be 11 pieces of bread a day, you know, that, that just at the time I was like, Oh my gosh, this is great. <laughs> I thought that was great. And fat was fat and, and, um, added sugar were a little tiny pyramid on the top of the, I mean, a tiny point on the top of the pyramid, the base was just grains. And, um, you know, so I bought into that, you know, and I would eat cereal. I would get some with fiber. They said they were heart healthy, you know, on the box and, um, but always with skim milk. And I always, you know, I, I would eat a big generous bowl of cereal. And the next thing I wanted was another bowl of cereal. I mean, you know, just the, the sugar, eating sugar just makes you want more sugar. And, <clears throat> And I would have it again for a snack in the evening. I thought it was healthy because it had fiber in it. <laughs> you know, and they said it was heart healthy on the box. Um, so, you know, I, you know, developed a really serious weight problem. Um, I've managed to keep off about 65 pounds since I went on a Mediterranean diet. You know, I lost a lot of weight. Um, and what happened in 2006, my husband, um, you know, I, I was reading an article about Alzheimer's and it was a study showing that people that ate the most Mediterranean-like diet that had Alzheimer's lived on average four years longer than people that ate the least Mediterranean-like diet. And that was the first 
awakening I had that nutrition could have anything to do with Alzheimer's. And, you know, so this is 2006 and I got all these different books about all these different diets. And then I did, you know, I decided, okay, we're going to do a Mediterranean diet. And we completely revamped our diet, got rid of all the boxed foods that I was heating up in the microwave, you know, for dinner. And we were eating at fast food restaurants a lot, you know, at that point. And um, just kind of stopped doing all that and just eating whole foods at home, cooking a lot more. I found out I actually like to cook, um, eating a lot more vegetables and, um, you know, and, and for me within like three days, I stopped craving carbs and thinking about my next meal all the time, you know, and, and that, you know, I've maintained that ever since in that particular diet and started introducing more fish and, um, olive oil into our diet at that point, this was before the coconut oil. And um, we were doing omega-3, you know, I had read books about omega-3, the importance of that, you know, we had added, well, that's one reason we added the fish to the diet to get more omega-3 fatty acids. And, you know, it just um, kind of went from there and, and I greatly benefited from it. You know, my blood sugar was high. It came down to normal. My husband's blood sugar, he was high. His came down to normal. And um, like I said, I lost uh, over about three years. I lost quite a bit of weight, um, which was really kind of remarkable. And, um, it, you know, I've just found, you know, well, I'm 71 now and my blood pressure is perfect. I don't take any prescription medications. You know, I feel wonderful. And and I didn't. I feel much healthier now than I did, you know, back before I, I switched my diet. Oh, and I'm a lot older. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, for being 71, it's like you're you're clearly there physically and cognitively, and it's it's really cool <laughs> yeah. to see how just like I, I know I've said this multiple times now, but just how such a simple change in mm -hmm. diet and just eating like not a bunch of processed junk is, I don't know, like I I used to do the same thing where it's like oh well, this is easier, like I'll just go to McDonald's or I'll just buy these packaged things and like it saves me five minutes throughout the day versus cooking, but then. You, you realize that like you you don't feel good and then once you make that shift and after a couple of days you're like wow like why would I want to go back yeah. to to living that way because you just you don't feel like you can function neither like physically or uh, mentally and it's like it's, it's kind of yeah. interesting yeah yeah a couple of times during the holidays like you know we'd go to a few parties and eat a whole bunch of junk and I'd feel like oh god I'd feel like so bad <laughs> and then I realized oh it was that all that food that I and to just get right back to the, you know, the regular, the diet that we had decided was better for us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's so relatable. And like, I noticed it a lot while running too. If like, I notice if I'm traveling a lot and I don't eat what I normally eat, just how much worse I feel. And then as soon as I go back to just, okay, like focusing on eating real food, it's like, oh, wow. Like I feel great. Like my, my recovery is spot on. I can think clear and things just seem to work better. And so, so yeah, I think this is really fascinating. And um, the yeah. whole story with like with you and then like obviously with your husband like that is just mind-blowing to me that the just how basic diet interventions and can really affect us in a positive way but then also vice versa how just eating refined foods all the time can affect us in such a poor way it's a very poor way yeah yeah he gained almost four extra better years you know because of all of that that were better than the year before he started the coconut oil so <laughs> you know, it was well worth it. And, um, it did improve his quality of life, you know, very dramatically. And, and mine too, you know, when you're caring for somebody that has Alzheimer's and, and they can do better, they can, they feel better, they're happier, 
you know, they're able to do more things for themselves. That's a big deal when you're taking care of them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's just an yeah. all around win-win for everybody. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we've been recording for a minute now, but um, I want to thank you for your time. That was really interesting uh, to learn all about that and, and how we yeah. can um, basically change our yeah. lives for the better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, if people want more information about this, I have a website. It's um, coconutketones.com. That's C-O-C-O-N-U-T-K-E-T-O-N-E-S.com. There's no Y in ketones. A lot of people try to put that in. Um, and uh, there's a contact uh, email in there. Like if somebody wants to reach me, at, um, my sister screens them for me. She helps a lot because I got a lot of mail through there. But, um, you know, that's a way to communicate with me. And then um, I do have um, a new book coming out, um, Alzheimer's Disease what if there was a cure? The story of ketones coming out. My third edition of the book. Um, it's my husband's story is a big part of it. The science of ketones, the whole history of of ketones, ketogenic diet. You know, the ketone ester, all of this that we talked about, and then how to implement it in the diet. You know, is in there, and um, that's coming out September nineteenth. And then um, I have another book that came out clearly keto for healthy brain aging and Alzheimer's prevention that came out in November of 2022. And the first uh, big chunk of the book is about diet. It's really about diabetes and, you know, all these things you can do with the diet. And, but then a whole lot of other things that you can do things to do things to avoid, you know, getting more sleep, getting more exercise, you know, different things like that and foods to avoid and foods to, to, consume, you know, that could help, um, with, uh, brain aging. So, um, you know, those are available as well as a few other books. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for letting me plug. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I'm, I'm excited to, to read your new book. It sounds really fascinating, especially now that you've updated it with the ketone esters and like right. we were speaking a little bit before we started recording how, um, we had, uh, Frank and then also Brian from uh, ketone aid and Delta G respectively on the show. And, it's interesting how that has improved so much or the science behind that and the process has improved so much over the years and how the prices come down. And it's cool to see the market kind of creating that change. And we're going to, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting data coming from, um, from ketone esters here in the future. It's going to be fun to see. Yes, it is fun to see. It's, uh, it's evolving very quickly. So it's really exciting. When that came out on the market, I was so excited. I could finally tell people, you could go get this now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you can just buy it on Amazon. Like you can buy it. It's a super right. easy to get now, which is yes. great. Yes, it shows up not too long after you order it. Yeah, yeah, two days, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, Mary, I'll let you get going then. I know you got okay. some stuff coming up and things to do, but I, once again, just really appreciate the time and the conversation. And it was, it was really fascinating. Oh, you're welcome, Derek. Thank you so much for inviting me on your program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And um, we'll have to talk soon. All righty. Take right. care. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too.